0: Artsville, Artsville, a happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, feeling mountain high and inspired in North Carolina. Oh, that's where you'll find us, amazing artists and designers. Welcome to the Artsville Podcast, where we celebrate American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville, North Carolina, and beyond. This is the podcast where you will learn how Asheville became Artsville. I'm Scott Power, a.k.a. Sourdough. I'm one of the producers of the show. I'm the founder of Crew West Studio here in Los Angeles. And I'm joined with my dear friends and colleagues, Louise Glickman and Daryl Slayton from Sand Hill Artist Collectives in Asheville. Hey, guys.
1: Hey, everybody.
0: How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm excited about today's episode.
1: So are we. We're excited because this one is really a wow. And I think to people who aren't from the Asheville area, I think this will be very surprising to them.
0: Well, and that's because we have Kate Everett from Black Mountain College here today to tell us the amazing story of that incredible institution.
1: Well, it is amazing to me on many fronts, but Black Mountain College was an educational institution. It is no longer here, per se, but all that came from Black Mountain College has been incredibly formative to the progressive, intellectual, creative place that Asheville is today. And it's very much in tune with our whole concept of how Asheville became Artsville. Because Black Mountain College was where so many very famous artists came after World War II and found Asheville as a refuge and welcoming place.
0: Yeah, this is that moment where we get to name drop, right? Because some of these names are just incredible. When you, you know, this is the who's who of contemporary art history, right? And design and architecture and what have you. I mean, the names in the geniuses that came through Black Mountain College is an impressive list to say the least, no? Well,
1: I mean, should I just sort
0: of? (laughs) Should we go? I'll tell you what, let's go back and forth. You name one, I'll name one. How's that?
1: Okay, let's do it. First couple, William and Elaine de Kooning.
0: Okay, I'm going to match you and raise you one, Robert Rauschenberg.
1: Okay, I'm into couples therapy, and here (laughs) come Joseph and Annie Albers.
0: Oh man, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I got Jacob Lawrence.
1: All right, here comes someone you wouldn't expect, Merce Cunningham.
0: Ooh, good one. Good one. Okay, here's one that maybe you would expect, but I tell you what, it's one of those star names that gives Black Mountain College its reputation, Cy Twombly.
1: Oh, no. I got a better
0: one. Okay.
1: Ready?
0: Let me see what you got. Buckminster Fuller. Oh, snap. Yeah. I, I th- know oh, you might have won no, no. with that one. I mean, all of these geniuses, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, we could be here for hours, right? But I mean, this just gives us a taste, gives our audience a taste of the importance of Black Mountain College, who went there, and the incredible story surrounding this institution.
1: Well, the thing that is so remarkable about it is as an educational institution, all of the people, many whose creative families Still exist here in Asheville and certainly the intellectual qualities of this community and some of the great parties we give, by the way, (laughs) amazing parties (laughs) (laughs) in mid-century times. So we're talking about a lot of the influences were in the 50s, but a lot of these people came from Europe escaping from Hitler and all the turmoil there, to come to this small town in the mountains, start this incredible art institution, and influence not only the progressive, diverse reputation true to Asheville, but all over the country, all nationally, it's a remarkable story.
0: It is an incredible story. And we have the best person to help us tell the story, right? Because we have Kate Everett Anderson... And she is the staff historian and, and a board member there at Black Mountain College.
1: She's an incredible resource for Black Mountain College. She's very involved in the community. And their wonderful museum is right downtown, you know, nestled among a Blue Spiral and
0: Yes, it's all walking distance.
1: It's all within walking distance, It's
0: incredible. Yeah, I was lucky enough to get there. I actually, on the same day, on that day when I was downtown, I easily walked from the Black Mountain College Museum, over to Blue Spiral One, over to Momentum. I mean, it's it's all very civilized, as it were, <laughs> in terms of being able to stroll from one place to the other. But I encourage everybody to go when you're in Nashville. Check out the Black Mountain College Museum because it is such a delightful experience.
1: Great. Great. Yes. We're very proud of it.
0: Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, guys, should we get to it here? Should we start our interview with Kate? Yes.
1: Absolutely. Don't waste a minute.
0: <laughs> All right, here we go with the one and only Kate Everett Anderson from Black Mountain College. Kate Everett Anderson, welcome to the Artsville podcast.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited to be able to talk
0: with you. Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited you're here. I've been wanting to talk about Black Mountain College for so long. And I know you've been so busy. I've been so busy. We finally are here today. You know, we were able to coordinate this. This is so exciting. So I just want to get into this because I've had the chance to learn a little bit about Black Mountain College, but I'm a neophyte. I know nothing And our audience may have heard of Black Mountain, but they may not really understand the history. I mean, let's start at the beginning, Kate. Who are you and what do you do for Black Mountain College?
2: Yeah. So as you introduced, I'm Kate Everett Anderson, and I've been at the Black Mountain College Museum and Art Center for five years now as our outreach manager. So I do a lot of this kind of work of trying to take the history of Black Mountain College and bring it to as many people as possible, whether that's through podcasts, social media, digital exhibitions. Our whole goal is to take this really complex, exciting history and then be able to bring it out into every corner of the world, because as we'll talk about, Black Mountain was such an international community. So we want to make sure that even though we're so proud to be based here in Asheville, that our reach is as far as it can possibly get.
0: So Kate, how did you get such a cool job? I mean, what was your journey to this position?
2: Yeah, I got super lucky. So I have a master's degree in art history, and I actually got my undergrad here in Asheville and absolutely loved it and would do anything to come back. And it just so happened that a position opened up here the week before I graduated from my master's, and that was actually in line production for some of our larger stage productions. So I came in on that side of things and have just been able to dive as an art historian into the research around Black Mountain College and have just made that a big focus since that point. So, you know, the story of every job in the arts is like, just do a little bit of everything and then ultimately, you'll like, find your niche. But I am incredibly lucky. We're a small team. There's only four of us. So we all do everything here. And we're very DIY. so it's it's a really special experience to work here. And I think, You know, as you talk about the history of Black Mountain College is so expansive, you might think that our museum is like this institution with dozens of people behind it, but it's really the four of us trying to make as much
0: magic as possible. So it sounds like, Kate, you are never leaving. You may be there your, all of your career. <laughs> I, have,
2: I have no desire to go anywhere else. Yeah, I've, been, I've yeah. drank the Black Mountain College Kool-Aid.
0: <laughs> Although it feels like Black Mountain College Coffee is a good brand name for uh, <laughs> totally for the, the coffee as well and the Kool-Aid. Well, thank you for that, Kate. That's fantastic. And you're like one of the luckiest people alive, right? That you get to actually work in your field, work at a, at a historic institution. So take us back, though, as a historian and the keeper of the Black Mountain College story. Take us back to the very beginning, the roots. How did Black Mountain College begin?
2: Yeah, luckily for me as a storyteller, it starts with a scandal. (laughs) So there was a group of faculty members at Rollins College in Florida, and they were brought in. There was this kind of larger progressive education movement at the time, they were brought in to make Rollins more progressive. Turns out they were a little bit too progressive for Rollins. There was a lot of conflict between the administration there and particularly John Andrew Rice, who is the founder of Black Mountain College, and also like a famously difficult person. Brilliant, but famously difficult. So he was a student of John Dewey, the philosopher, and carried a lot of his educational ideals. And so... Ultimately, when he was at Rollins, he was fired, which was a major scandal. And so he and a group of other faculty members and their students decided rather than try to find another institution that would accept them and allow them the freedom to do what they felt they needed to do to fit within this educational philosophy, they would just start their own school. And luckily, they had these connections in Western North Carolina. So they found a ready-made campus at the Blue Ridge Assembly, which is just outside downtown Black Mountain. And it operates now, as it did then, as a conference center. So they were able to come in there and immediately have a campus and start classes and get their college underway. And those first few years were as much figuring out what that college was going to be, as much as just trying to fundraise and get as much of a stable foundation as possible um, while they were at Blue Ridge.
0: Well, th- I have so many questions. I mean, should we spend time unpacking the scandal specifically? <laughs> because I, I am so intrigued, you know, yeah. because also we we also live in a time now where what's scandalous now may not have been scandalous then as well. So it's fascinating to think about what might have been going on, <laughs> but maybe we don't want to go there. I don't yeah,
2: know. it's it's an interesting thing where I think A lot of the things that made John Andrew Rice so brilliant and allowed for Black Mountain College to come into being, I think his influence was so important. But he left Black Mountain College, too. So he's one of those people who was kind of the spark that was really necessary to a lot of the ideas at the college. But just personality-wise, I think the running of a college and being part of a faculty makeup and the administration, it was just not his thing. But it is interesting to think about present day because some of the things that led to his firing, I think, probably would have also gotten him fired today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, tell us about his educational philosophy. What was so innovative and unique about it?
2: Yeah. So, again, he's a student of John Dewey. And Dewey's educational philosophy was really about hands on learning. So, this idea that we now, I think, don't necessarily take for granted, but Seems very basic as far as, of course, you're going to learn something better by doing it yourself than having somebody show you how to do it or reading about it in a textbook. And that very much goes back to this idea of Dewey. So if you take that to the next degree, looking at how arts center into that. So hands-on learning could be anything from, as we'll go into Black Mountain College, they built their own buildings. The architecture program was not just drafting blueprints. It was hands-on building the buildings yourself and the arts are also integrated into that and that just by working with materials and problem solving and doing all the things that go into the creation of art whether you're an artist or not is going to change your perspective on the world to a point where you can problem solve in other ways that was really foundational to black mountain is not only hands-on learning but at the center of that would be arts And that's one thing that I want to say up front is Black Mountain College wasn't an art school. It was a liberal arts school. You could study anything there. But arts were central to learning just from a pedagogical and educational standpoint.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. So, you know, as I understand it, I mean, so many of the famous artists that ended up going to Black Mountain College actually escaped the Nazis. And to end up in rural North Carolina— from Germany or from World War II. My God, I mean, how how did that happen? Can you tell us that story? The
2: story of Black Mountain College is all about synchronicity. So 1933 is the same year that John Andrew Rice and his colleagues are be- are leaving Rollins and starting this school. And simultaneously, the rise of the Nazis in Germany led to the closure of the Bauhaus. Bauhaus was this incredible school of art and design that was founded after World War One. You can imagine kind of the collective trauma of that war, the way that we as a society had to rethink the world from the ground up. So the Bauhaus's approach was really like, let's design a, bu- a better world, literally from a teacup up to buildings, as well as just how we consider the world and how we as citizens start to consider our place in it. And so... There are, again, these incredibly progressive educators there, innovative thinkers, who, as you can imagine, pose a big risk to the rise of fascism, let alone that many of them were Jewish. So the Nazis started strongly antagonizing the Bauhaus, and it became too dangerous to keep the doors open. So in thirty-three, those doors were closed, and a good amount of their faculty immigrated to the United States as refugees. So two of those figures that are going to be really foundational to this story are Yosef and Ani Albers. Yosef was an instructor at the Bauhaus. He taught the foundations course, which would go on to be also foundational at Black Mountain College. And his wife, Ani, was a weaver. And she was also an incredible modernist designer that she incorporated all these ideas into weaving after she came to the Bauhaus. And Ani was Jewish. So that was another reason that they were forced to flee. So they came to New York initially, as did a lot of their colleagues. Um, They found their way typically to the Northeast. And they actually were connected with John Andrew Rice. Um, John Andrew Rice is starting this school in Western North Carolina. And he knows he wants art to be central to that education. But he's not an artist. And they don't really have a lot of artists in their circle to draw on. So they go to their colleagues at MoMA and are connected with Yosef Anani Albers. One thing to consider is that Yosef barely spoke English when he came to the United States. And so John Andrew Rice writes to him and says, you know, will you lead my art program? And he writes back, you know, I... Don't speak much English. Will this be a problem? And he said, No, just come on up. And Ani spoke English and was an incredible translator on his behalf. So they found their way initially to New York and then found their way to North Carolina. And it really is that connection with the Albers that led to people like Walter Gropius, who was the founder of the Bauhaus, um, along with many others, to come to Black Mountain because it became this hub of the Bauhaus in America.
0: And as I recall, some of the names, uh, of course, this is happening over years, but some of the famous artists that studied there, that they perhaps taught there, I mean, we've got William de Kooning, we've got Robert Rauschenberg, we've got uh, Cy Twombly, I mean, on and on and on. Can you, can, I mean, tell me like, who, who I, I know I'm missing so many here. Buck, <laughs> That's an oh, endless by the way, Buckminster Fuller, M.C. Richards, yeah. John Cage, I mean, on and on. I mean, let's, let's honor some of these amazing people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think and it's interesting. A lot of the names that you're mentioning are those that came specifically in the 1940s um, and early 1950s. So to kind of backtrack a little bit, but get us up to that time period, as I mentioned, they were initially founded at the Blue Ridge Assembly. That was kind of their ready-made campus. But every summer they had to take everything they had, pack it up, put it in the attic and move on, which obviously is unsustainable. And also, you know, they never knew if they'd have enough money for the next semester. So it was always kind of this like, well, we'll pack up and hope for the best. So ultimately, they decided to purchase their own property. And that was what is now Camp Rockmont out in Black Mountain. It's known as the Lake Eden Campus. It's an incredibly beautiful landscape that was Actually, initially developed by E.W. Grove, who's a famous architect within this area. So it has kind of this very lodgy, camp like feeling. And so once they got there, they could start doing what Josef Albers referred to as summer institutes. And so this would be an opportunity to invite people who would otherwise be engaged throughout the year or could maybe only offer a week or two of instruction, but they could come down for a summer music institute or a summer art institute. And that was a major draw for students. So people like Buckminster Fuller, who were on faculty at Harvard, could come down for a summer. And not only would he be able to come down and address this incredible student body who were just ready for anything, he also had land to play with. So you think about the first attempt at the geodesic dome happened to the Summer Art Institute of 1948. And Elaine de Kooning, Willem de Kooning's wife, who was there with him over that summer, played a big role in that as well. And they had these fields to lay out Venetian blinds and see if they could get enough ten- going on those to stand them up and build these domes, which of course didn't work. They didn't think it was going to work, but it was this experiment and failure. They were able to learn as much about the structural integrity by the fact that it failed as they would if it succeeded. The next summer, Fuller came back with a group of students from Harvard and they built the first successful geodesic dome at Black Mountain College. So it's this progression that happens there. Um, You mentioned John Cage, who... We currently have an exhibition on specifically looking at his relationship to Zen Buddhism. But he and Merce Cunningham, the choreographer, came down initially as visiting performers, and the campus just fell in love with them. And so they were invited to come back as instructors. And that was incredibly fulfilling for both of them and also led to... Relationships with people like Robert Rauschenberg, with MC Richards, um, all of these relationships that carried forward throughout their lives. So we really can look at these summer art institutes, summer music institutes as these kind of quintessential views into what the community of Black Mountain College was like, kind of at its most... um, most invigorated and most energized. You have this group of people who are coming together from all across the globe um, with a common mission at sometimes getting into very heated debates and at sometimes making lifelong friendships. And all of that was so important to the community and the way that it functioned.
0: Well, and for those of us who have worked in the arts through our careers, right, we also know that artists can throw one hell of a party. I understand that maybe there were some epic parties had there at Black Mountain College. I'm sure some of the some of these stories are sealed uh, <laughs> uh, away in records that can never be unsealed. But what what are some of the legendary parties that people talk about?
2: So there were some Awesome parties. The first one that comes to mind is the Greek party. So that was led by Jean Varda, who is, I'm gonna say, inconclusively, but with love was the director Agnes Varda's supposed uncle. But if you want a glimpse of who he is, there's this fantastic film that she did, Uncle Yanko. And she finds him on like his amazing houseboat. He's just this incredible, very European, very flamboyant person. And so he came in to Black Mountain and they had a Greek party, which involved building a Trojan horse that was out in the central lawn of the campus. And students were wearing togas and reciting Greek Greek myths and poetry. And it really was this amazing, amazing moment. We have fantastic photographs of that.
0: It's the original Animal House party. Yeah, it's really legitimately. I mean, there
2: are so many things. There's some great accounts, and especially, you know, in the later years when things were dying down a little bit, the students would come in with these hearsay stories of what used to happen, and they'd all kind of feel like they got to the party too late. So <laughs> definitely spread by word of mouth. But I'd also encourage people to take a look at The Valentine's Day party images from Black Mountain College. There are some phenomenal ones at the Alvarez Foundation with these handmade masks and costumes. And, you know, you can just imagine you get this amount of creative people together in a room and then you add a little bit of beer and
0: Lord knows what else. And you get Burning Man.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you get a very
0: avant-garde version of Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would there be Burning Man without Black Mountain College? Oh, that I, I don't it. know. I think uh, – <laughs> I
2: don't know. I can see a lot of Black Mountainers judging Burning Man at the same time. Be like, well, that's not quite what we're after. You know, it's <laughs> – Yeah,
0: right, right, right. Exactly. Well, you know, so obviously – Black Mountain College started because of these amazing human beings who really founded the school and became instructors. But then they, of course, had brilliant students who then would become incredible artists or designers or architects in their own right. And those folks and their work and their portfolio, if you will, is sort of exist with the the Black Mountain College DNA baked in there. You know, can you talk a little bit about how – the students that came out of Black Mountain College and how Black Mountain College and the instructors there informed their work and made them who they are.
2: I can point out a few students in particular, but I also want to kind of break down the distinction between faculty and students and specifically going back to MC Richards, who is just one of my heroes and definitely one of the unsung heroes of Black Mountain College. But she came in initially to teach English She had her PhD, and she also was a translator. And she actually, later on, then transitioned into a student role where she started studying pottery. And ultimately, those two things, poetics, philosophy, spirituality, and pottery, really defined her and her writings. But I think that this malleability between people like her who were these intellectual powerhouses who had this incredible influence on their students... One student is quoted as saying that they learned as much doing dishes with MC Richards as they did in Yosef Albers' classes. You know, just these people who, not only in the classroom, but... In things like we haven't talked about, there was a working farm. You're literally digging ditches and working a farm alongside your faculty members. You know, these, these experiences and these relationships with faculty and students went far beyond the classroom. And also a lot, of, a lot of faculty members would step into student roles every once in a while and be on both
0: ends of things. Kate, it sounds somewhat communal.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Black Mountain College, really, I think what makes it so special is is the community. It's educational ideals, which we kind of skimmed over, but I want to touch on where, you know, there's these misconceptions that at Black Mountain College, there were no grades. There were grades, you just didn't really see them. And they weren't really the focus Students could come from anywhere from two weeks to up to eight years. Some might have stayed on longer. That's the longest I've heard. You could formally graduate, but there really wasn't seen as a requirement or even expected of you. You were really there to be a part of the community and to learn as much about yourself in those interactions as possible. So when I talk about students going up to the farm and Finding eggshells and things and then bringing them back into Albers classes and working with the cooks. And I'm thinking particularly about student Mary Parks Washington, who would take things like whipped cream and soap suds out of the kitchen and bring them into courses. The classroom was just one element of the larger community um, that was involved at the college. So, especially when we talk about these relationships between faculty and students, you have to think about that of sitting next to each other at dinner every night and sharing space, sharing these parties, there there was not this kind of hard hierarchy that existed there. But I want to go back to your question about faculty and students, because as much as there wasn't a hierarchy, I do think it's really funny to think about people we now consider like these famous artists when they were really young and they were students, particularly Robert Rauschenberg. So he came in on the GI Bill, along with a lot of other students, and he came with his wife at the time, Susan Weil, who really was the one who kind of spurred his time at Black Mountain. But he and Joseph Albers butted heads pretty consistently. I think Rauschenberg had a lot of respect for Albers, but also, you know, was the young kid trying to do his own thing. And we think about, like, what's really progressive and avant-garde for one generation is, like, old hat for the next. So... Rauschenberg has said, Joseph Albers was my greatest teacher and I was his worst student. Um, <laughs> and that's reflected in his student file, which is really funny to see. Kind of like, oh, he's lacking the discipline needed to do XYZ, you know? Because you have to think, you know, they were kids, really. I mean, he was in his 20s, but they were young and still figuring out who they were as artists. You know, he did his white paintings at Black Mountain College at that time. And That, of course, lays so much into Josef Albers, who's so famous for his work with color. And then the young Rauschenberg with these white paintings influences John Cage and the creation of his famous four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. So there's this teacher to student, back to teacher relationship happening there that continues throughout their lives. And the same could be said for Ruth Asawa, who is another Black Mountain College alum, who had these lifelong relationships with her mentors from Black Mountain, Albers being one, Buckminster Fuller being the other. And she went with the Albers to Mexico, and through that experience, started learning about wire baskets that were made by the indigenous people there. And then she took that along with this open-ended prompt from Albers to draw a continuous broken line, and then all that she learned from Fuller about structural integrity and integrated these into these unbelievably beautiful crochet wire sculptures that she made throughout her life. And so you can see, again, it's this, it is kind of these seeds that get planted at Black Mountain that then flourish throughout these people's lives. Um, she was an incredible arts educator and advocate for the arts and for children, and she she is really well known for that in San Francisco with the Ruth Asawa School for the Arts. So even though Black Mountain College closed its doors and its teaching practices stopped there, she carried that to the West Coast and incorporated it into the lives of countless children. So there is this continuity there that's really important to bring out as well.
0: Well, thank you for that. And and you mentioned the words or the phrase closed its doors, and I I didn't want to necessarily get to the end of the school, necessarily this early on in the conversation, but since you brought it up, I'm fascinated about that because clearly this was a flame that burned bright, but it burned for seemingly a, a short time. And it's curious that it's a fire that is not burning any longer. Well, talk about that. Why and how did Black Mountain College come to a conclusion?
2: So... Again, as you mentioned, we're kind of skipping over a lot here, so I'm happy to circle back to those kind of later years as well. But I think if you consider the time period that Black Mountain College existed, it's kind of amazing it lasted as long as it did. It starts during the Great Depression. It works through World War II. Um, There's this boom of success with students on the GI Bill coming into Black Mountain College and really invigorating that community just with shared numbers. I would be remiss to not mention that in the early years when a lot of the young male faculty and students were at war, Black Mountain College was predominantly female. And it was some of the most prosperous times financially for the college as well, because the women were incredible at running the farm and the work program. So there's kind of these culture shifts that happen every few years. There are... Major conflicts between faculty that lead to faculty splits, where one member would leave and a whole group of students would leave with them. This would happen every once in a while.
0: But you're talking about revolts, yeah? I mean, legitimately, like- <laughs> it is drama. Is it? Is there? Well, let's stop there for a second. Yeah. Is there? Is there a famous revolt that we can talk yeah. about? This is exciting.
2: There is something called the split, which was a famous tension point at Black Mountain College, and. It was prompted for a few reasons, but one of them that I'll mention is there was actually a group of young students from the college who were hitchhiking into town or hitchhiking out of town. I can't remember which and were picked up for solicitation because, as you can imagine, there's a lot of questions about what everyone's up to at Black Mountain College.
0: Sure. Yes. Yes. That socialist, liberal, uh, communist uh, compound up there. Yes. So
2: there's these girls and, you know, I'm just imagining here they're in their sandals and just scandalous for the (laughs) village of Black Mountain. But they were picked up for solicitation and they were dropped off and it was all okay. But the debate over what to do with those students, because one thing you have to understand about Black Mountain College is it was based very much on democratic ideals, and also very Quaker, so a lot of decisions, almost every decision, would be made by consensus. So if you bring together, let's say, twenty incredibly intellectual people with very strong ideas, <laughs> you sit them in a room, you're like, you have to reach a consensus on this
0: issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Few things are more difficult. Yeah, it's like you think about like
2: every court drama you've seen with like a jury. I think it was very frustrating for a lot of faculty members. And so one thing that came up for vote or for a decision was whether or not to suspend or kick out these students for kind of drawing this kind of negative attention to the college. And again, I'm kind of I'm very much summarizing this because there's also a lot of conflict that was already there that this is kind of just lighting the flame for. But there was a major split. And particularly you can consider a lot of people were kind of in the camps either with the Albers or with MC Richards or for these other figures at the college. And as we've mentioned, students were very loyal to their mentors. And so if you're having this ongoing community debate, and ultimately you feel like the perspective of the person that you respect the most is being dismissed, or you feel like your place in the community is being dismissed, then there would be these times when faculty and students would Part ways with Black Mountain and move on. The Albers ultimately left in 1949 to go to Yale. And that was for many reasons, some of them very practical. But also, you know, they've spoken a bit about it, and it's a bit speculated that if they had full control, Black Mountain College would have been an art school. They were really wanting to be more grounded in the Bauhaus, which was not a liberal arts education. It was an art and design education. And I think that these moments of tension and trying to reach consensus, all of this got very old for them. And they were just ready to move on to the next step. And so that kind of brings in the what kind of think of as like the third chapter of Black Mountain College. And at that time period, we're moving into the 1950s, of course, another big culture shift happening there, and the culture of Black Mountain College shifts. So uh, there's a lot of incredible work in the visual arts and music and design occurring in the early 1950s, late 1950s. But it became more and more well-known for poetics and the written word. Um, And a big part of that is Charles Olson, who became rector of the college in the 1950s. And... Full disclosure, I have very strong feelings about Charles Olson as a man. You know, he's got kind of this hero worship kind of following, and I'm sorry to all the Olsonites out there. I'm not going to, like, indulge (laughs) too much of that. (laughs) But he did play a huge role in the Black Mountain College community, um, bringing in a lot of young poets who were very much inspired by his work. He was very well known for projective verse, this very kind of strong kind of machismo that was brought to poetics and was also a big influence on the beats. Um, People like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac, who were loosely associated with Black Mountain, but not at Black Mountain. And so the 1950s leads to this rise in poetics at Black Mountain College, as well as the rise of craft at Black Mountain. They can finally have a pot shop in a ceramic studio. So this is when M.C. Richards starts studying pottery at Black Mountain College Karen Carnes and David Weinrib come in to teach pottery. Um, there's this amazing summer pottery seminar in 1952. These international artists coming in. So there are there continue to be these flashpoints of incredible cultural progress at Black Mountain College. But this is against the backdrop of kind of the slow financial and community crumbling of the college. So as you can imagine, in the 1950s, it gets a little bit tougher to sell your parents and sending you to this avant-garde college in the woods somewhere, the rising fear of communism. There were very active, very vocal communists at Black Mountain College. We actually have FBI files on quite a few people like Buckminster Fuller and Charles
0: Olson and others. I really want an FBI file, right? Kate. Uh, I'm hoping I my life won't amount to much if the FBI doesn't have a file on me. But, you know, hey, that's a whole other conversation. Sorry.
2: It's a, You can read between the lines of all the redacted stuff. So you really could write one for yourself and then redact most of it. And then <laughs> exactly right. no one exactly. would know any better because there are full files that are just black <laughs> marks. So, yeah, so there's a lot of kind of cultural pressure on Black Mountain College as well as political pressure on Black Mountain. So towards the end of the 1950s, the veterans at administration, who are the ones who oversee funding to Black Mountain through the GI Bill, they start kind of questioning, like, how legitimate is the school that we've been funneling money into for X number of years? And of course, with McCarthyism, this raises a lot of red flags for them, not pun intended, maybe. (laughs) And so they get in touch with the FBI, and there's an FBI investigation into Black Mountain College we have the full report on our website it's definitely worth looking into there's a lot of things like them saying like, very unusual class organization with no distinction between students and faculty you know just <laughs> everything about the college that made it black mountain made it just absolute horror in the eyes of the fbi but something else to think about is your know, class size went down quite a bit kind of at the at the highest point of black mountain there'd be maybe 150 200 students Uh, You know, per session, specifically at the summer sessions, it would be more people. By the end of the college, we were down to seven or eight students and nine members of faculty. So, with this smaller student body, suddenly you have. Two FBI agents pretending to be Black Mountain College students, <laughs> literally infiltrating the campus, and everyone knows who they are. You know, it's like X Files.
0: Like the, one of these does one of these does not belong. Exactly, Which it's one like, who are the suits are. who showed up? You know, right, right. And
2: so they're doing everything they can to freak them out. Like Dorothea Rockburn talks about, they like put cigarettes out on their feet and walk around in the snow barefoot, and you know, just do every, <laughs> just be like yeah, you're right, we're freaks up here. And ultimately there weren't any charges filed to Black Mountain as a result of this investigation. We're just left with amazing anecdotes from the report. But the Veterans Administration did decide to cut funding to those students who were there on the GI Bill, which is was a majority of those students. And by the end, that was almost all the money coming into the college, was from these students getting their GI Bill checks throwing them on the table and going, okay, what are we going to do to get through next week? So it really was pretty dire in those later years. And ultimately, it was those financial pressures that led to the college's closure.
0: Well, then, so the college lives on, right? I mean, in terms of, you know, incredible conversations like this, you know, amazing historians like yourself who are carrying the torch and making sure that the history, it doesn't get lost and the stories are told and people understand the legacy and the heritage of this amazing organization, you know, and and that comes to life today, certainly with the museum and art center, right? I had the opportunity to visit the museum when I was there briefly a few months ago. Can you share with us kind of the origin story of the Black Mountain College Museum in Art and its role in in terms of education and keeping that legacy alive?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for all your kind words. I'm glad you were able to come and see us. We were started independently of Black Mountain College. As I mentioned, there wasn't the whole endowment left behind for us to start a museum with, but we were started in the 1990s by Mary Holden now Mary Holden Thompson and her family is very closely associated with Warren Wilson College which is just up the road from us and Warren Wilson and Black Mountain College had a really close relationship. They were the Asheville Farm School. And, you know, you can imagine these city kids at Black Mountain College, your pig gets sick. You're like, help, go to the Asheville Farm (laughs) School. They'll give you some advice. So when Warren Wilson changed to Warren Wilson and became a liberal arts school, they took a lot of lessons from Black Mountain College. That's definitely one of the kind of the local... Spaces where that legacy lives on. Her father was president of Warren Wilson for a period of time, Mary Holden's father. So she grew up in the area. She is kind of part of this ongoing legacy. But it wasn't until she moved to Paris that she started really understanding the Impact And the fact that there are people across the globe having these conversations about Black Mountain College that weren't at the time being had here. It's kind of like this this part of our history that was seen as like, well, but they weren't really us. You know, it's, it's Western North Carolina history, but they weren't from Western North Carolina. You know, they were European or whatever it was. And so there wasn't a lot of like pride and ownership of that history here in the 90s and the decades prior to that. And so... She starts kind of coming to these realizations in Paris and says, you know, we really need to have a space that can hold on to this history in Western North Carolina so that it doesn't become this history that gets dispersed and that we no longer, you know, have a a centralized location for the full story of the college. You know, any museum worth their salt is going to have in their collection Black Mountain College artists. But the real difference is, can you bring together all these different members of the community, famous and otherwise, to tell the stories of what really happened there that made it so important? And so it was decided to start the museum in 1993, and that was done with input from alumni. There are quite a bit of alumni and some faculty who are still with us. A good amount are. There's something In the water with black mountain college students they're like the most lively incredible people Um, so we're very lucky to still have a good number of alumni still with us but in the 1990s there was a reunion and the question was posed to alumni and faculty what would you want this museum to be and as you can imagine a very black mountain college answer was you know we don't want this stagnant institution that just tells the same story and doesn't progress further. And this is part of the reason why we're a museum and art center. That really goes back to Robert Rauschenberg even saying, museums are dead. We don't need a museum, we need an art center. And so we kind of hold both of those spaces so we started collecting artworks and ephemera at that time from Black Mountain College alumni, their families, and private collectors. One of my favorite things about our collection, which to plug is the biggest Black Mountain College collection in the world, um, which is amazing because we are a small museum, as you saw, but we, our collection we're very proud of. And my favorite thing about it is that if you look through the deeds of gift and how these things came into our collection... It's because alumni were gifting each other artwork throughout their lives. So it'll be, you know, this piece from this person that was gifted to them that was then donated by another person. And it's kind of this beautiful trail of relationships all throughout our collection. And it makes it really special and includes a lot of artists that you might otherwise never have the chance to see their work, some of which because they started families and No longer had time to create their work, or just aren't mentioned in the books that you read, or whatever it is. We hope that when you come in, you can both see kind of the more famous pieces, but also maybe discover somebody new, because those are the people who really made up that community. So we started collecting in 1993, and we're nomadic for many, many years. We were over at Warren Wilson for a period of time. We would exhibit at galleries, including Zone One Gallery, kind of throughout our history. And then ultimately found our first home, which was on Broadway in downtown Asheville, 56 Broadway, which was our home for 15 years. Um uh, a really special, wonderful place, which is where our community really got a central hub to start coming together. And So we were there for about 15 years, and then in 2018, moved into our current space, which we're hoping will be our permanent home. I mean, it's a two-level museum with an upper and lower gallery, a research center, our bookshop, which I have to plug Carissa Pfeiffer, our development manager, does an incredible job with. We have like so many treasures of Black Mountain College there. And here, we're able to do exhibitions. We're able to do performances. So... You know, it's not about having a gallery space where you walk in and you go, here is the history of Black Mountain College from beginning to end. We're kind of here for that, but then in addition, you can come in and have these hands-on experiences with different exhibitions that tell a lot of different stories. Um our current show on John Cajun's and Zen Buddhism Starts with his time at Black Mountain College, but goes up to present day with contemporary pieces and with pieces from his friends and colleagues like Yoko Ono and David Byrne and Laurie Anderson, who weren't at Black Mountain, but were so and continue to be so inspired by it. So that's a big part of what we do is trying to not only preserve the legacy, but also continue it by showing those artists that are still inspired by Black Mountain today.
0: So what of the future? I mean, you have this great responsibility as a historian, which is why I'm also so grateful to have you on today to educate me and our listeners about this amazing story, this amazing history and sort of the present day even. But as you think about the future and where Black Mountain College, where it might go, its legacy, certainly the Art Center, what are your thoughts in terms of the future?
2: Yeah, I think it's really exciting to think about and also we're coming off the end of our annual conference right now. and
0: Ooh, tell me about tell me, what, the annual conference. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we, we do an annual conference called the Reviewing Conference at UNC Asheville. And it's an amazing opportunity to start bringing together scholars who are telling all these different stories about Black Mountain. And, you know, thinking to the future, it's amazing to see every year at the conference, the stories get more and more granular. And they get more and more precise to different kinds of identities that were not as privileged in the histories up to this point. And there is so much research to be done in that area, and so many artists who are speaking to these things that we are able to bring forward. Black Mountain College has this incredible history as a queer haven, and there are queer artists creating work now that they really attribute to the freedoms that were allowed at Black Mountain College. Black Mountain College was also incredibly the first college in the American South to integrate. And that was 10 years before Brown v. Board of Education. And so going through the archives and trying to learn as much about the African-American students and faculty as possible and being able to bring their stories to the forefront. I think when I think about the future, I think about the fact that there are endless stories to tell about Black Mountain College. And that can be done through scholarship, but it also is very much done by artists. So it's our goal really to just give space and facilitate those artists to tell their stories and to be at the cutting edge of what's happening now and look at how that directly ties into what was happening at Black Mountain College. So thinking about the future, our approach has always just been keeping things open and available for progress. The question is always like, well, why don't you start the college again? (laughs) There's a lot of different reasons for that. But one is it would be completely different now than it was then. It would be facing different issues. It would be addressing different cultural problems. And I think that our goal really is, you know, just to create space for the scholars and artists and curators who are answering those questions today and bringing them in conversation with Black Mountain College.
0: And this juxtaposition between the very progressive nature of the school Sort of vis-a-vis the incredibly conservative part of the country that you know the school is located in, and this idea of a faith conference, you know, and, and and sort of religious and diversity, as an example, talk about that dynamic and that tension, and and people like Jacob Lawrence and the LGBTQ movement.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think every one of these kind of identity intersections is going to have a different story at Black Mountain College. So I'm going to try not to generalize. But maybe we can start off with the integration of Black Mountain College, because I do think it's an interesting conversation to have when you have this group of people who are escaping persecution, typically racially based persecution, coming to the United States and starting a college or being part of a burgeoning college. And since the beginning of the college, the idea of integration was on the table. So there are there's an 11 year ongoing conversation there. That is somewhat documented. There are certain times where it's documented more than others, but it is an ongoing conversation. You have, of course, people who really know what it's like to be on the other end of this kind of racial violence and persecution, very consciously saying, you know, how can we be a part of a segregated college? after all of this. Others also coming from a point of trauma saying, how could we invite that kind of violence to our campus? And how could we invite students and faculty to come when we know what the stakes are? You know, you think about inviting someone like Jacob Lawrence to the Jim Crow South, you know, he, that is an incredible risk to take for him and his wife specifically, but also for the campus body. But ultimately in 1944, the decision was made to integrate and, they brought in specifically the incredible Alma Stone Williams, the first African-American student to ever attend an all-white college in Jim Crow South. She was also a Rosenwald fellow, an incredible woman. She has multiple master's degrees, um, multiple, I believe she might have multiple PhDs. And she came in for what was reported as a completely uncomplicated summer. She had a great time. She went back to, I believe, Atlanta and kind of reflected on the fact that her time there was unremarkable. And that was kind of all they could ask for. She had a wonderful time and really enjoyed it. And so from that experience, they started inviting more African-American students and faculty into the campus. And it was kind of just this quiet thing that they were doing, but they were advertising with historic Black universities. So it was kind of this very strategic idea of getting the word out with those with similar ideals but also trying to kind of keep things i think that's part of the reason that we don't think of black mountain college as like you know that's an incredible thing there was the first college to ever integrate in america but almost no one knows that and i think it's also because it wasn't something they advertised very loudly outside of historic black universities for that reason So people like Jacob Lawrence and Gwendolyn Knight Lawrence came to Black Mountain. It was their first experience in the Jim Crow South coming from New York, and they never left campus. And I think that's very understandable. The Black Mountain College was in many ways kind of this haven, not that it was a utopia at all that had its own issues. But it was, and especially for faculty, I think for staff, it was something different because staff had a lot harder time separating from the Black Mountain College community. Um, There's a story of One of the Black staff member's sons going into town with one of the white summer faculty students' daughters. And they're walking, you know, like kids do. They're like, oh, let's go up the road. And there's young friends that they're making. And everybody has this moment of, oh, my God, what if someone sees them together and hops in the back of a motorcycle and goes to track them down? So they were very aware of the danger there. The same for LGBTQ plus issues. I think it was a haven for a lot of people, and it was a place where a lot of people had the freedom and ability to explore different elements of their identity. Famously, Robert Rauschenberg met Cy Twombly and has this moment. Um, he's there with his wife, and they have a young son, and he has this moment of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Because I'm in love with this man. And And I think that a lot of that's really well documented. Specifically, I want to call out Michael Brumaker's book. It's a memoir of him kind of coming his age as a, as a gay man at Black Mountain College, but also there are stories um, Robert Bunch, who was an extremely beloved faculty member in theater, was picked up and arrested in, I believe, in Asheville for being parked in a car with another man. So, yeah, I'd like to kind of look at this in a nuanced way where there is this kind of outside danger of this is what culture was at that time period. And I think that that adds to the freedom that was allowed at Black Mountain College um, in a lot of ways. That also adds to Our understanding of the risks that really were taken and how much bravery went into forming a community that was as accepting as Black Mountain College was. Again, not a utopia, but relatively extremely accepting and allowed for people to flourish into who they were as individuals.
0: Well, and that is an ethos that would serve us well today, isn't it? And Kate, that's such a beautiful kind of ideal and idea, I think, for us to wrap up today. I want to thank you for being uh, with us today. You've been so generous with your time. This the I will you come back because I mean clearly we scratched the surface I know, I'm today like hearing, on the history of Black <laughs> rock I'm hearing everyone be like, "Why didn't
2: you talk about the happening and this and that? There's so much." <laughs> so yeah, I would love to come back anytime.
0: Well, well, so with that in mind though, before we do wrap yeah. up. Yeah, I'm giving you the mic. I mean, tell us tell us what what's one story, one anecdote, one thing that we need to end with that you want want to leave us with that we have managed to look over or not know about uh, altogether.
2: together. Okay. So I have to steal the mic for this. So one of my favorite things that we were talking about LGBTQ plus at Black Mountain College, and the question I have had for years is where are the lesbians? where are they? And there is this incredible essay called Peggy that we came across as part of our Women of Black Mountain College show. And I want to call out, especially those in California and especially in the Bay Area, Peggy Tolk Watkins, who started one of the first kind of it was drag. It was queer. It was one of the first places that Odetta performed at, and she was she came from Black Mountain College with her husband and her girlfriend, and they came to the Bay Area and founded you know these foundational areas that led into the Bay Area becoming this incredible queer cultural center. And there's a great essay that her girlfriend at the time, Harriet Sommers swirling also lover of Susan Sontag, when Susan Sontag was problematically young. Um, so there's a whole lot there. Uh, but if you ever want a good look at the sexual liberation of the 1950s and 60s, read anything by Harriet Summerswirling. It is salacious. But she met Peggy Tolk Watkins at Black Mountain College and wrote this incredible essay about how she tailored her genes and everything it brought up for her. And it's just, there are these awesome, awesome kind of histories that are, again, just underneath the surface. And those are just two women that I want to bring up that I would definitely say is worth looking into further if anyone wants to hop on Google right now.
0: (laughs) So what you are saying is that Black Mountain College family actually were the catalyst for the sexual liberation in San Francisco, the movement in San Francisco. I think there was
2: a big connection there. Wow. Yeah,
0: I would say of course. That, that's huge. That's incredible. Yeah,
2: it's one of many ingredients that went into the it went into the pot to make that happen. But Peggy Tolk Watkins was definitely a catalyst for that.
0: Wow. That is amazing. That just that, that again, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> isn't it to think about how artists really drive culture and make change and drive change because they have the courage to change and be open and be empathetic and compassionate and visionary because that's the real risk. And, you know, thank God for Black Mountain College. And thank God for you, Kate Averett Anderson and Averett Anderson. I might have gotten that wrong. I apologize, but I'm so grateful for your time. And please come back, will you? And tell us more amazing stories about the history of Black Mountain College. You have a dream job.
2: I do. I do. Thanks for indulging me. I appreciate it.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Artsville Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Artsville is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles in partnership with Sand Hill Artist Collective in Asheville, North Carolina. Our theme music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Danube Productions. Artsville is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Artsville. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. Artsville, Artsville, the happening town where art abounds. Artsville, Artsville, from Asheville town where art abounds. Artsville. Hartsville feeling mountain high and inspiring North Carolina That's where you'll find us amazing artists and designers oh yeah Artsville, From Ashville.